Hey there, listeners. Sorry about last week. We had some technical issues that are, well, actually, they're not at all sorted out yet. Pour one out for the old editing PC because that poor machine is dead. But after editing this entire episode with a mouse pad and recording this intro from my closet, we have a really special episode for you. You're listening to Tech Policy Grind, the podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. My name is Emery Roan, and today we're bringing you a conversation I was lucky to have with Mary Stone Ross, one of the original co-authors of the ballot initiative that became the California Consumer Privacy Act. In this winding conversation, we talk about debunking common CCPA myths, why privacy rights are so essential right now, and what it takes for a CIA analyst to turn privacy advocate. I say this about every conversation, I'm sure, but I had a really great time talking with Mary Stone Ross, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it. I can't promise we'll stop talking about the CCPA after this episode, but if you enjoyed last season's wonky dive into one of the most exciting privacy laws in the country, we'll stick around. Now, before we head off to the State of the Net 2019, where we recorded this conversation, I have some exciting news. The Internet Law and Policy Foundry will be accepting applications for our next class of fellows starting next week. Stay tuned to the Foundry Twitter at ILP Foundry for more information, but expect the application to go live on March 15th, and the final date to submit your application will be April 30th. If you're a student or emerging professional, or if you have a tech law and policy background, we hope to see your application. The Foundry is a collection of early career professionals trying to pave their way in the tech law and policy world. I've met some incredible people, friends, and colleagues, and it's really given me some awesome opportunities. So, all that said, right now, let's get back to the wonkiness. Please sit back and enjoy this deep dive into the California Consumer Privacy Act with co-author Mary Stone Ross at State of the Net 2019. So, Mary Stone Ross, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really uh, thrilled to have you on here. You, Thanks um, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Mary, for our listeners, uh, if you aren't aware, was um, one of the sort of driving forces between uh, behind the uh, Californians for Consumer Privacy, the organization which pushed the ballot initiative, which became eventually the California Consumer Privacy Act. Is that was that? perfect. Okay. Yeah, that, that was... Right on target. Excellent. <laughs> it's complicated. It, it is a bit of a mouthful to <laughs> you know parse the ballot initiative AB three seventy five. In multiple panels today, you know, folks will just instead of saying CCPA or California Consumer Privacy Act, they might just say three seventy five. Like right. Although now it's I don't even think they call it AB three seventy five because it's eleven twenty one was the or, and it was SB not AB. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, you were one of the the driving forces between behind the organization. So I'd love to talk a little bit. I mean, you were on a panel earlier, rather. Let me rewind a bit. Today, you're at State of the Net 2019. You were on a panel entitled uh, Pressure Cooker, What Does the GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act Mean for Washington? So you opened up the chat with... Um, you, you said that you know that's one of the one of the myths about the CCPA. Uh, I, I have a feeling that you have in mind um, probably a bunch of myths about CCPA. Oh, do you absolutely. Wanna, do you want to correct the record? <laughs> I, I would love to correct the record. Um, so one of the myths, and I mentioned this on the panel, but was that it happened in a week. Right. So anybody who has any experience in legislation knows there is no way like yeah. that that would be a miracle if yeah. anything could happen in a week. So this whole it's also like one of the most prevailing narratives around CCPA oh, by everyone that opposes it. Like, oh, this was done in a week. This is terrible. Well, I think it's also they're using it as an excuse now for well, why didn't you get your voice in there? Why weren't you part of the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. And the truth is the discussion 
mentioned, started almost three years ago. And um, so there were three of us, and um, we had this idea to do some sort of initiative on privacy, but beyond that, you know, like, where do you even start? Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of a policy nerd. I, I lived in Washington for a really long time. I was a staffer on the House Intelligence Committee. We are gonna get into your background, oh, by the way, because I didn't even know this, but um, <laughs> listeners, we're, we're speaking to a C, an ex-CIA analyst. <laughs> and it's, I really wanna unpack the pathway from CIA analyst to, you know, Privacy advocate, frankly, <laughs> like I, I can't really see much more of a, like a diametrically opposed <laughs> positions. But well, sorry, we'll get into so. that in a little bit. But the where the initiative started was just really with research and with talking to as many people as possible. We mentioned this earlier, but Beth Givens, who mm. is um, at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and is kind of like our founder, a, yeah, our and and a, a, a god in the privacy community, and has been working on this before. I think before Google and Facebook were even an idea. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. So Beth was one of the first people that we spoke to. Um, and then she, you know, it's funny how the spider web kind of works. And mm -hmm. then she had a list of 10 people that we should reach out to and talk She's to. She's very good and, at that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, but you know, we needed that, right? Yeah. Because it was, privacy is really complicated and the privacy advocacy community is not always in line about what they want. And, and like truthfully, I think that's part of the reason why they never either did an initiative or a legislative push because they couldn't really agree on what they would want to see in a bill. So I think coming in as an outsider was actually, hmm. we were kind of the, the, the catalyst that they needed to, to get something done. So you so spoke earlier on the panel um, about the, the, like, the crystallizing moment for you. I mean, it has become like mythologized in like Alistair Mattaggart's version of his like story talking to a <laughs> Google engineer. But it, it sounds very party. similar to, yeah, the cocktail party. <laughs> but it sounds very similar to yours, which is, I remember you yeah, said so that. I mean, I think that really did happen for Alistair. But then, so he had this idea to do something about privacy, but then, you know, like having an idea and then translating it into a law are two very different things. And so I had just moved to California with my family and um, was trying to figure out what to do next. And it was kind of, I mean, I, I, I fell into working on the initiative, mm -hmm. which was an amazing, amazing opportunity. Yeah. And so the, besides talking to all these different groups in the privacy community, I just, for myself, I want to say like, okay, let me see like how much information is really out there. And I mean, it blew my mind. It's, it's terrifying. It really, really is. It really is. And you know, unfortunately right now, the only way to find out is when a company screws up and then it, they get pressed for that. But it's, you know, it's not just the screw ups. And that's that if you find out, right? I mean, we run, oh, the, for sure. we run the breach chronology um, at privacy rights. And I mean, I, I'm a little behind on updating it, but I mean, we are, you know, because there's so many, way there's been more than 13.5 billion with a B exposed records since we began tracking this back in 2005. You know, this is, even if you receive a notification, are you going to check it? You know, are, are you going to go to have I been pwned and like put in your email address and see if it's actually compromised? I'm like, no, you're not. Well, and the problem is like, now I think we're at the point where like, Okay, if you're, you like kind of expect your email address to be compromised or like maybe even your credit card number or maybe even even your social security number. Gosh. But what about the day when my Apple has my face print? Yeah. I, I can't change that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I 
can't really change my social security number easily either. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other problem. Maybe we shouldn't tie a seven-digit number to our identity that can well, never be changed. And, exactly. But, yeah, so the Californians for Consumer Privacy uh, was an organization begun in March of 2016 yep. and went right up until, I guess, the ballot initiative transformed into the CCPA, AB 375. Right, or AB 375. Yeah. No, because actually the initiative was the California Consumer Privacy Act, so sometimes I trip up a little bit. Okay, too, so I, 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 I've... How much am I going to want to go into... So... For a long time, one of the hills that I was willing to die on was that <laughs> the California Consumer Privacy Act should be abbreviated CalCPA. Oh my gosh. So, um, <laughs> so funny you said that because one of the, like, we before we even had language, I reserved a whole bunch of domain names. Oh. <laughs> and so I got caprivacy.org, okay. but calprivacy.org was already taken. Oh man, who has it? I don't know. Someone just sitting on it. Well, I so, thought that, so that's, I, I thought <laughs> that's that to, why. to lose sight of the fact that this is a California-led initiative <laughs> is just misguided, so we should keep it CalCP. I think that in 2019, that ship has sailed, and unfortunately, everyone I've heard has called it CCPA, so that's <laughs> what we will go with, <laughs> dear listeners. Um, but I'd like to talk, I guess, not just about um, this sort of ballot initiative, but you're clearly very well versed in the CCPA as well, and we're uh, ready with um, you know, defending it against some of the other panelists earlier. Um, so we spoke... I was thinking about Sacramento. Oh, well, <laughs> got to be a big fight going that's, on. Right that's now. the real fight, frankly, yeah. Um, but I'd, I guess we talked about, you know, one of the myths earlier is that it was a three-week or one-week project, mm -hmm. and we all know it was actually much longer than that. Um, what are some of the other myths that you think frequently gets, you know, unfairly cast on? Well, I think CCPA? one is, and you heard it a lot on the panel, it's going to stop innovation. Oh. I mean, that is ridiculous. So if you go and talk to people in Silicon Valley, one of the things that they cite as stopping innovation is actually the size of Facebook, yeah. because they literally either you are on their platform or they crush you mm -hmm. and that's that's not good for anybody right and i think another one was that it's anti-business and um you know we drew the line pretty early on and my two co-authors both come from a business background mm -hmm. was that we were going to allow companies to collect personal information and to use it however they want to and you know quite frankly we actually got a lot of pushback from the privacy advocacy community because they wanted they didn't think it went far enough unless we went after the collection of information but you know we kind of decided, okay, like if you can actually find out what companies are collecting about you and you have a means to at least stop them from selling that personal information, then then let them collect it. And then you can make an informed decision as a user, do I use that product or not? So that brings up a really great point, I think, and that is the the data subject rights, which are, I think, at the core, the, the foundation of the CCPA. I, I, I see... And I think a lot of people see it as analogous or at least inspired by the general data protection regulations. Yeah. And yet, clearly, um, Californians for Consumer Privacy is, you know, long before GDPR Day was, I think, a huge concern among business and privacy advocates in these states. So. But, I mean, we were definitely influenced by GDPR. Right. But we were influenced by a lot of different bills. Like, it, people might not be aware, but... 
talking about privacy and even looking for a national privacy legislation is it's it's not a new fight. It's been going on for years. Just nothing has happened at the federal yeah. level, and yeah. I, I think part of that is companies have convinced us that oh privacy doesn't matter you can trust us golden rule like we're we're, we're here to help connect people we're I'm sorry that the point at which the company that said do not don't be evil became oh, like a nameless corporation that no, could but be. they changed their do you know they changed their motto it's no longer oh, exactly no i'm saying like as soon as the company that's motto was once you know don't be evil or don't, you know. What you know what, it? did you ever see like Dr. Evil? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean now that, are you evil? I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying, the company that <laughs> once said do it evil? Would, you know, don't be evil is now a company called Alphabet, which sounds like just straight out of like a sci-fi dystopia corporation. <laughs> like they, that, that is a name of an evil corporation. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, I think that. You know, well, that what was interesting last fall when we, sat down with, we met with um, Apple, and we met with Facebook, and we met with Google, and we had phone calls with Microsoft. And Google was the one that had no interest in mm. any sort of privacy regulation. And then they said, like, well, even if there is privacy regulation, you know, there doesn't really need to be any enforcement. So they didn't even want AG enforcement mm. of it. So just trust So that us. is one of the, just for our listeners to be aware, I think we discussed this on our episode at the end of last season, which was was like a, a wonky deep dive into CalCPA because <laughs> I was calling it CalCPA at the time. Um, but you know, one of the big differences between the ballot initiative and what we what eventually turned into the Consumer Privacy Act was the private right of action in the yes. ballot initiative. So the ballot initiative really was very very strong on individual enforcement. Do you want to talk about? I guess that that. Yeah, and you know, or that thought about it? well, I think that was one of the major concessions that they had to make to get it done through the legislature. The problem, though, is now the AG, the Attorney General in the state of California, is the basically the only enforcement mechanism. Yeah, and they don't have the funding to go after companies right now. I mean, and now like their funding, they have to to come up with all these different regulations. So I don't think a private right of action is the only way to enforce something, but if you don't have a private right of action there, you have to empower whatever body is the enforcement mm -hmm. body to, to be able to do their job. And so I don't think, I think they eliminated the private right of action and then without really funding the AG's office. There is just a, a little bit of a caveat there for our listeners. There is, one of the things that I think is really exciting about CCPA is the funding mechanism. So there, yeah. there is a, a privacy fund portion of the of the statute, which requires that I think 30% of any case that the AG brings, whether they win or lose, goes towards the privacy fund. I think it remains to be seen. Obviously, it remains to be seen <laughs> whether or not that will be sufficient or not. But yeah, baking in those enforcement mechanisms are, is so essential in any kind of privacy legislation. I Absolutely. Think. I, we talked a little bit, or rather, you spoke a little earlier on the panel. You alluded to the idea that um, you think that it's time for a federal privacy bill as well. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on there. Someone that, you know, for a lot of the privacy advocates that are currently myself included, um, reticent to try to push for a federal privacy bill right yeah. now, given- But you're in California. <laughs> and given we're in California and we're seeing this 
really for the first time, I don't want to use the I word, but like innovation at the state level, um, you know, across the country and a number of different states. How is that playing in your head as far as like the role of the states versus the federal government? And I think those? everybody needs these privacy rights. Yeah. And I also think, you know, I think the Internet Association and TechNet, I think they're gonna, they think they can come in and then preempt all the state laws. And I think that preemption for such a big privacy bill is actually very difficult. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe that's a deal killer for the federal law. But I think that the issue right now is that CCPA will become the de facto privacy right, which is great. Right, but then you, because the private right of action was eliminated, now you have the Attorney General of the State of California, who's awesome. I think he, <laughs> but still, it's it's one person who was an elected official, and that that organization will change. And so, to make a relatively small enforcer for such a big issue, I think that companies will take their chances and say like, okay, mm. like a violation is gonna be the price of doing business. And we ha the have the ability- The problem is clearly dire. You know, it is clearly a problem affecting everyone. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something I vacillate on like every day. <laughs> what, what is the right approach right now? And, uh, you know, I, I think that Lee on the, one of the panels earlier and um, had spoken to the idea that, you know, there there's certain flavors of preemption, right? And there's That's like right. preemption and preemption. Yep. Um, and there's a number of things where we, you know, have federal bills that. Um, well, look at HIPAA. Yeah, exactly. it, it's, That's a great example where it's actually a pretty strong privacy bill, but yet it sets a, a federal floor and right. then it allows the states to set a higher ceiling. And, yeah. you know, I don't hear a lot of criticism of that framework. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think our formal position right now is that we would appreciate, we would support a federal privacy bill that does set a floor, not a ceiling. I just, uh, I don't know how likely it is to see that right now. Yeah, I don't know either. It's, yeah. I mean, all of this, it's, well, and, and just having written a, a law for California, what you find is it's, it's easy to, to lay out the framework, right? Like it, we always, we always started at the right to know was, was, that was foundational. And then later on, we added the right to opt out of the sale of personal information. And actually later on, we added the extra fines and penalties for data breaches, but the private right of action was also always in there. Um, so that was a very simple right to know, mm -hmm. right to say no, increase fines and penalties if you don't protect my information, and then the um, enforcement mechanism. But where it becomes really complicated really quickly is in all of the definitions. Mm -hmm. And so I think my concern right now is that you have a lot of deep-pocketed money interests in Sacramento and here. and. Words matter. And so, you know, like you propose a few changes that some of them might seem like cleanup measures, and some of them are, right? Like, that's legitimately, yes. there are, as Lee said, like there's typos in the law. But other ones change the whole meaning. I mean, of this, it. Yeah, I, there are tons of times when a single word can, you know, a single is. A I mean, I'll give you an example. In B, S, SB 1121 was the cleanup bill. Right. And so the Chamber of Commerce and a whole bunch of different organizations sent a 20 page letter to Senator Dodd with all of the changes. And I mean, they came out of the gate roaring for a fight because mm -hmm. they knew that 
what would happen, right? Like yeah. if the initiative passed, and I mentioned this on the panel, the reason why initiatives are so strong in California is the only way to change an initiative is through another initiative. Right, so maybe it's a little, I, I wanna like time out a little bit and talk about the ballot initiative process, because I oh, think sure. that, that's yeah. like, I think that's really the secretly most interesting aspect of CCPA. <laughs> like, I love the law, I really do. But what I think um, it, the ballot initiative process created that narrative that this is a one week endeavor. And all of that being said, what I think CCPA made a lot of people realize or think about is that the ballot initiative is manipul like the process of, be of the ballot initiative is manipulative. Oh yeah. Or manipulatable, I guess is the it right word. It absolutely is. Um, you know, it, it makes you think that, gosh, you know, if I just had three million dollars, I could apparently get a law passed in California, <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's right or wrong right now. But like, so, well, let me know when you want to talk about no, it because I have so I, many thoughts about that. Please. So I think this was actually a perfect use of the initiative process hmm. because. There should have been a long time ago regulation around many of these issues. Maybe not such a broad bill, but there, the, the last law that was passed by the legislature on privacy was in 2003. I mean, that's, well, I mean, and then Cal ECPA, but like the most major one that no. was more, so I mean, that's really shocking to me. Yeah. And so I think that this was an issue where it's all about consumers. It's all about your right to control your personal information. But yet in Sacramento, there's so much money there from the telecoms. So AT&T and Comcast are notorious, like all over Sacramento. But then now more so, and I think certainly after what happened last year, um, the, the Facebook and Google and the other big tech companies had not Cambridge Analytica happened. I don't think yeah. that it would have passed through the legislature. It, it really was like a, a, a perfect storms, like guys kind of moment last year. And um, we also, the title and summary we got from the attorney general's office was amazing. Mm. And so we did a lot of internal polling, even before Cambridge Analytica, we thought we were going to win. And then certainly after. And so, you know, the opposition was doing the same polling yeah, that we yeah, were. Yeah. And so, you know, like if Sacramento can't get it done, and this is clearly something we need, mm. then um, it's a good use of the initiative process. The, the bad part of it is it's a tremendous amount of power that's put yeah. into the hands of unelected people. I mean, granted, the voters of the state of California yeah. get to make the decision, um, but it's, you know, it's it's it a little bit, the it, it bypasses the legislature. And, you know, I think we were appreciative of that power. And I mean, we didn't want to tank the economy in the state of California. <laughs> what? Really? I, I'm pretty sure I have read some um, opinion pieces that have said that Mary Stone Ross wanted to tank the... <laughs> well, you know, maybe secretly. I mean, we didn't even want it. We had several conversations about how we, we didn't even think Google and Facebook would care about this because at least publicly they were saying they don't sell personal information. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners, you couldn't see that, but I rolled my <laughs> eyes so hard they actually fell out of my head, rolled across the table. I had to just pick them up and like shove them back in there. It's gross. So the way we got around it was we said, okay, we'll trust the attorney general because mm -hmm. we don't really trust the legislature. <laughs> but at least right now we have a great attorney general. So we will give, it's now a he, but we will give him a, a lot of authority to add categories every year. Now we 
caveated it by saying you couldn't delete categories. So mm. you couldn't say all of a sudden biometric information is not mm. included as a category of personal I information. That, yeah. Yeah, so we wanted to make sure the law moved forward and was robust. And, you know, I mentioned this on the panel too, writing technology law is hard for a number of reasons, but one of them is technology is always changing. And yeah. who knew psychometric information or profiles would be a thing? But I'm just waiting for the world to wake up to gate analysis. Yeah, <laughs> so it's so we wanted to make sure that we created a living law. And I, I hope that if there is a federal law that they create something that can be changed and that you change for the better. And I, I, I guess that's loaded too, right? How do you <laughs> right, yeah. But <laughs> All right, so, uh, you know, I think it's time to go back to that little tidbit that I dropped at the beginning of this discussion, which is the path that you took from UVA law to the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to back up even further. Okay, because I I, 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 said, I saw on your LinkedIn page that before <laughs> UVA Law, you were also an, an at analyst. At Los Alamos. At Los Alamos, yep. right? All right, so. So actually, I have to back up even further, and you can edit whatever out you want to. This is to. all great. Um, so in college, I was actually a molecular, cellular, and developmental biology major. And... Um, we so STEM lawyers. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> we were not required to take any specific classes, but they there are four different groups of or categories, but it was group one, two, three, and four that you had to take courses out of each one of those groups. Mm -hmm. So group four were all the math and science classes, which usually people hate fulfilling, but you know, because I was MCDB, I had I, I could have. Yeah, like, I thought that's what you guys like live for. <laughs> I mean, I hated that. <laughs> I was in the philosophy intro to logic classes. <laughs> Y'all were, however, I thought all about that science and math. So meanwhile, I was terrified to take any of the humanities classes. <laughs> Our college's lives were very different. <laughs> so the first class I took um, was a political science class called Intelligence and Covert Operations. Interesting. And um, my professor was, he was this awesome guy, Dr. Westerfield. And he, he, at the time, I think he was like 72. And he would come in and like always like brightly colored pants. But he, um, he made it fascinating. And, and I got an A, even though I was terrified about it. I, I actually getting could write papers. Getting an A in a class <laughs> is really motivational. <laughs> like. So I got interested in political science. And, and then I um, ended up taking this, um, what is a combined graduate and undergraduate seminar called Grand Strategy. And so as part of it, they we had to do an internship because it was a spring semester and a fall semester. So my advisor was an advisor to Los Alamos and he's like, well, how would you like to go out there? And um, so I'm like, sure, <laughs> why not? And oh, and that's part of my career advice is say yes, even if you're not sure, you never know, because it's yeah. it, it was life-changing. And so when I was out there, I um, it was before September 11th, but we were working on counterterrorism issues. Mm, wow. And so my group at the time, it seems like funny now, because it wasn't that long ago, although I'm dating myself, but we had the most powerful computer in the world at Los Alamos. So we designed these massive, massive infrastructures. Mm. Um, so the water infrastructure and the electrical grid and transportation. And, but the little piece that I was looking at is how someone could take a, a really random segment of the economy and, and if there was a terrorist attack, what the effects would be. Huh. 
And so my paper looked at the beef industry. So it was oh. even like a subset of agriculture to see like if you disrupted it, what, what would be the effect? Because at the time, you know, like everybody was talking about the hard targets, but it was the soft targets that we thought were the most vulnerable. Interesting. Remember, it was before September 11th. So after September 11th. Yeah, uh, so I went back out there. It was a great experience and I learned so much. And so after I graduated, I went back out to Los Alamos and, um, and September 11th happened. Right. And I thought the way to stop terrorism is through intelligence. Hmm. And so I, I um, because I thought I still needed a graduate degree, but I no longer <laughs> wanted to go be an MD-PhD and, uh -huh. and live in a research laboratory. Yeah. I decided to go be a lawyer, because why not? And so I ended up at UVA because at the time, they had the basically the only national security law hmm. program. Interesting. Yeah, and then so I knew I wanted to go to the CIA, and, and it happened. And then from the CIA, it's just such an interesting shift from <laughs> CIA analyst who, I mean, a, a whole especially in the post 9-11 world oh, was, yeah. you know, was scooping up a lot of data um, to go from that to the privacy advocate is... It was scooping up a lot of data, but I remember one of the groups I worked on, we call them one of the accounts, was the Iran team, and it was during the Green Revolution, and so I was monitoring Twitter, because actually there was so much information that that it was activists on the ground in Tehran were, were live tweeting about what was going on, and it, it was incredible. And I got so much pushback about being able to use that in a Finnish intelligence product. Huh. So I think even, I mean, granted, it was a while ago, but... You said something on the panel earlier that um, you know, at the time, the w w one of the things that sort of catalyzed that shift for you was the realization, or I guess the horror of realizing that, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, these companies that are accountable to no one, that are basically unregulated, um, are scooping up more data than the government in a lot of ways. And so when I left the CIA, I was counsel on the House Intelligence Committee. And so part of my job, or I mean, it's the, the mandate of the committee is that you have oversight over the 17 different intelligence agencies. And that was fascinating, because you <laughs> see how they all work together. <sighs> right, and so, and, and it was, I think it was, from that very high level that I really appreciated how much information is collected mm -hmm. and the power of the information. But also, I mean, we really did have pretty good oversight mechanisms in place. And so, right on the panel, what I, I what shocked me when we first started figuring out, you know, like what sort of privacy law should we have, I, I just wanted to see like, okay, how much information are these companies mm -hmm. collecting? And it was, unbelievable the intrusiveness yeah. and you know on one hand it's not surprising right like now we all put our faces into the into our iPhones but it was all these companies that you've never heard of become an expert on data brokers which I had never heard of before oh my gosh I, yeah we we have not yet had a proper episode deep dive into data brokers but I think that, that when is, you do you should oh, talk to Pam Dixon so it was it was just it was scary, right? To see how much information was collected and yet these companies have done such a good job hiding it that uh -huh. nobody was outraged. And and it's so I mean it, it's I got into privacy explicitly expressly as a reaction to the Snowden revelations. See, and that's like, like in my mind 
that was nothing compared to, because remember, like the Snowden revelations, it was metadata, which is very powerful, except, I mean, think about it, right? Like companies are collecting, they're collecting metadata and they're collecting so much more than and metadata. It was more than metadata too. I mean, there was like wholesale contents of communications and. But it's, <laughs> but the difference is that it, it was not for on U.S. citizens and right. and, not and intentionally and, at least not unless they were scooped. But up there's by a whole. Right? The, it might have been scooped up, but it couldn't have been used. It, all of that there is a process to redact it. We have, we have really good regulations mm. about that, and here you have these companies that are collecting. God only knows what, right? And and nobody knows. I, I think and one of my um, one of my favorite quotes of 2018 is like, like every uh, sci-fi tech dystopia eventually is indistinguishable from an actual product description. <laughs> Like, I saw a service that is like gonna scan. There's a service that you can pay them like 30 bucks, and they will infiltrate someone's Facebook feed to try to incept ideas to them. <laughs> There's a service that will. It's like an insurance company that will work with businesses in order to like scan messages and scan social media in order to determine like predict who among them is going to become pregnant. Like, oh, I know, and that's like old news, right? It's like the news. classic yeah, target, the target story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but it's, you know, and maybe somebody wants that, but come on, you have to, there has to be some limit. I've got to be able to say and, no. Until I can say right. no, I'm not going to be. Like, or at <laughs> least, like, I need to know, how are you getting all this information? Yeah. What information are you getting? And and right now, unless there's a data breach or some sort of other, or a Cambridge Analytica, nobody knows what's going hmm. on. But, you know, a lot of these products were developed just with a growth mindset and not with a, I mean, and, and by that, I mean, you know, not resilience as the other way it's used, but we want to grow at all costs yeah. and we don't really care. Like privacy is dead. It doesn't matter. And that's right. And, you know, another interesting um tidbit from the initiative process was we did a lot of focus groups early on, way before we started writing, um, to, because part of the initiative process is running a campaign. So mm -hmm. we needed something that would get voters to the poll and to vote yes, because it's much harder to run a yes campaign than a no, because there is a certain segment that will just vote no, no matter what. Interesting. And then Interesting. it's easier to, you know, we're going to break the internet, we're going to drive business out of yeah. California, You all the free services will no longer be free. Your Uber ride will no longer work because you can, you know, like all these yeah, scary, yeah. scary stories that aren't true, but it's, so So anyway, the um, we did all these focus groups and we purposefully had a focus group just of millennials. And then we had a focus group down in Silk, with Silicon Valley tech workers. And those two panels, hands down, were the most supportive of privacy regulation. Interesting. Because they knew. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, the folks that know are concerned, right? And you like, hear, like, like when millennials are the highest users of ad blockers. And, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's. And they're not on Facebook. And they're, yeah, they're although they might be <laughs> on. Yeah, I guess. The, what is the, what is the Gen Zers are not on Facebook. <laughs> I guess the millennials But there's are other, but how are any of the other ones? I mean, I'm sure there are other good ones, but. Yeah. You know. So I want to take um, a little bit to talk about that 
about the lessons you learned from the ballot initiative process and specifically for the young folks, the aspiring folks? I mean, you, what, what advice do you have rather for the aspiring student, the maybe the person that's in their field right now and is like, actually, you know, I'd like to change this law. <laughs> like, I, this, is, this bothers me and I, I want to mobilize around this. Yeah, well, I mean, go intern at one of, there's great privacy groups. Um, uh, EFF and ACLU does a lot. Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Oh, you're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waving my business card at <laughs> But I mean, really dig deep into the issue and go to conferences like there was today and yeah. be a part of the discussion. You have a voice and just there's nothing wrong with raising your hand and being heard. So, so Mary, I want to thank you so much for joining me. This has been an <laughs> excellent 40-minute conversation. And so, uh, listeners, well, if you don't get all 41 and minutes and 57 seconds of this, that's your loss. But uh, just email me for the uncut cut. <laughs> Maybe not everything. No, 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 no. But, Mary, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks. <laughs>